So now we've, we've seen Paul move on to Athens. We've kind of been following him around as he's gone and done his work and followed the Spirit. And he has ended up in Athens. And during his time here, the Spirit actually leads him to see that there are a lot of idols in the city. And I don't think it would have been that difficult. Um, Athens being the, the city that it was, there was a lot of worship of um, gods from a lot of different nations. So he took this as an opportunity to continue spreading the gospel message. And he actually uh, begins by speaking in the, the synagogues with the Jewish people, using the, the um, biblical texts, the um, Old Testament, the things that they knew, the prophets. He also caught the attention of the philosophers in the city, though. What Paul was teaching was so different from anything else that they had heard before that they actually invited him to speak at the Areopagus. And so the Areopagus, it was a small mountain of marble um, in the city where people gathered to discuss uh, and debate ideas. It was kind of the debate club, almost. The people would get together and hear different ideas and talk about them. That was, that was essentially what the Areopagus was, that area. So it gave Paul an opportunity to engage in what is known as Christian apologetics. And what apologetics is, because I know uh, it's, that was, was very confusing for me before I actually knew what apologetics was. Um, it comes from the Greek word apologia, uh, which is a form of verbal defense, essentially. So Christian apologetics is a verbal defense of the Bible and what we believe. And it's a really powerful tool in evangelism. Um, and, and it can take on a lot of different forms. But what we see here in Acts with Paul is the traditional type of scholarly apologetics, where he's using essentially uh, uh, thoughts and knowledge and wisdom and reasoning to have a discussion with people who don't know anything about the prophets, and they've never heard of Jesus. We'll get to that. So it's a form of speech and debate. And there's a discussion that takes place here about the beliefs um, held. And it, it appeals to the intellect of the people that he's talking to. So first, in verse 22, Paul acknowledges that the Athenians are very religious. He's noting that they're very religious. There's a lot of idols. There's a lot of um, worship and whatnot that happens in Athens. However, they're also ignorant to the true God that they worship because they have a monument. They have an altar to the unknown God, and we see that in verse 23. So they're so ignorant that they're, they're at this point where they're, they have an altar to an unknown God because they don't want to miss any. They want to cover off everything that they can. And they're like, you know what, just in case we're missing some, here we go. That covers us. Then, then we're good. It's kind of the equivalent of, of following all religions, Buddhism and Taoism and Islam and Christianity and everything, just to make sure that you're covered. It's not really the way that it works, though. 
So this opens the door for Paul to explain who this unknown God is, since they don't know him. And what Paul's doing here is using their perceived knowledge to enter into deeper discussion with these people. So they're already set up to be able to offer worship to a God that they don't know. He's just using this existing belief that there is a God that they don't know to introduce the gospel message in a way that appeals to how they already think. And this is a key factor in reasoning with people who wouldn't otherwise um, be open to a discussion about Jesus. And we see, we see a lot of that still today, where there's people that just don't want to have a discussion about Jesus. But if we can appeal to their existing beliefs, it helps us bridge that gap. So the next thing that we see Paul doing comes in verses 24 to 27. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs nothing, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So, He's launching into an assault on idolatry here. But when we look at the way that he goes about it, we can see that he's doing it in a way that engages well with his audience. So it's important that when we are speaking about our faith with other people, again, we do it in a way that's going to resonate with them. Because if we go and talk to somebody who has never heard anything about the Bible or Jesus, and yes, those people do exist. It's actually, uh, sidebar here, becoming more and more common where, um, especially amongst the youth of our day, there's this assumption that, oh, kids don't want to hear about Jesus. But I, uh, I've read from a few different people um, about their ministry in high schools and whatnot, about kids who actually have never heard of Jesus. And we're getting to that point where Christianity is not the norm anymore. And there are people who have never heard of Jesus or the, 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 the Bible in general, the Bible story. So it does happen where people have not heard about Jesus. So if we start using the Bible... And, and thinking that that's going to resonate with them, well, this, it's not something that they already know and understand. It's a completely new idea. But if we start speaking in terms that they understand, it helps accept that message. It bridges that gap. So remember that, that the people that Paul is speaking with here, he, he considers them to be religious. He told them that. And he explains that the God that they don't know is the creator of the world and the Lord of all, which is a, a biblically grounded statement that allows him to draw out some implications. But he's not, he's not actually saying, hey, this is what Isaiah says. 
This is, this is from Moses. He's not saying that. He's just using the biblical truth. So he pulls out that God doesn't dwell in human-built temples, which if we think of especially Athens, when we think about the Greek gods and everything and how they all have their temples and shrines and everything where they supposedly um, visit with people, it's a foreign thought to the people that were involved in, in Athenian religions that God doesn't dwell in human-built temples. He also pulls out that God is self-sufficient, and he doesn't require our human rituals in order to exist, unlike the gods in Athenian religions, where the gods fade if nobody follows them. God is also the source of everything. It's the third thing that he pulls out. Although he doesn't need us, we need him. He's the source of everything. He's the source of our breath. He's the source of our life. He's the source of our sustenance. We don't provide anything to him that he needs to survive, but he provides us with everything. So the broader point that Paul is trying to make here is that God's goodness causes him to be heavily involved in human life, and he does so because he wants us to seek him. He wants us to understand that we need him and that we need to seek after him. So after all of this, we see that Paul then turns to culturally relevant Greek poets of the time to help make his case. So again, we don't see him quoting Isaiah, Moses, any of the prophets. He actually says, Yet he is actually not far from e uh, each one of us, for, quote, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of, uh, uh, and then uh, end quote, as even some of your poets have said, quote, for we are indeed his offspring, end quote. These are these two lines come from. Um, classical Greek poems. This is, this is stuff, actually, you can find these. And he uses this to explain that this unknown God is not far from the unbelieving Gentiles, which is something that they held to because they wrote about it. They understand that there is God who is not far from them. They wrote about it. Again, he's not quoting the Bible. He's using something relevant to them that they're going to understand. And yes, I'm going to keep repeating that. So he makes a biblical case from a Greek source. He's using their own existing insights to make the point. And he does so in such a manner that his arguments encompass the Greek world within the larger biblical framework. So he's using what they already know and believe to put their lives within the biblical context. Essentially, he just shows them that uh, what they already know, what they already believe fits into the gospel message. And what it comes down to is this. God's distance from people can't be blamed 
for people failing to find God. There are observable signs within creation, including our own existence, that point to God. And that's a, a, a common argument uh, against Christianity and against the, the existence of God is that God is distant. But we can see that God is present in life. So Paul wraps up his speech by explaining that we can't make God out of lesser things. We cannot make God out of anything. God be, being creator and Lord is an argument in itself against idolatry. This is something that the audience here would have agreed with because it's consistent with the, consistent with the beliefs of the Epicureans and the Stoics that we're told Paul was speaking to. Um, both of those schools of thought at the time typically rejected idolatry um, in the way that they understood it. So they actually rejected idolatry as well already. And Paul was explaining that this is, this is idolatry. This is what's going on. And then he goes even further to speak directly to the errors within their own beliefs. Using what he's already explained to them about their own beliefs. He's showing them the fallacy in their beliefs. He explains that God is also the creator of the universe, who is a part of all things, but who also transcends above all things. And that's in, in contrast to the Stoic beliefs that uh, a God is physically present in everything, that this table is God, that the chair is God. So that's in contrast to that. And he also explains that God has appointed a day of judgment that he will be involved in. That's in contrast with the Epicurean belief system of a distant God that kind of sets the world in motion and walks away. So again, he uses their own thoughts and beliefs to show them that what they're saying they, uh, the core of their belief is, isn't, it doesn't line up. So he's constantly using their own contexts and beliefs to make his case. And this allows him to go on to call the people to repentance. And we see that happening. He calls them to repentance. We need to take note that some people would not listen. And that's going to happen. That happens. Um, I'm not really an evangelist myself, so to speak. But people who do evangelical work and are out there preaching the gospel on the streets, they know that not every person is going to listen to what they have to say. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And it shouldn't be our, uh, and we. It, it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be our prayer either. We want every person to listen. Absolutely, we want them to hear the gospel message and understand that Jesus is key to their life. So not everybody's going to listen, and they didn't to Paul. However, others wanted to hear more, and actually came to faith in the gospel, and they invited him back to talk more. And so we, we can use the beliefs in the cultural context of the people that we're, we're speaking to, that we're interacting with, um, 
in, in order for us to share the gospel well with them. Uh, it helps us to keep the conversation relevant and in terms that they understand. So that's, that's a look at traditional apologetics, the whole debating an atheist in a college setting or university setting, that kind of thing. But as we see, unbelievers can still work their way around these arguments and walk away from it, especially a conversation. It's very easy to do that with a conversation. So there's other ways, though, that we can still proclaim the unknown God. And we can look to the likes of C.S. Lewis for, a, for an example of this. So after losing, and I didn't realize that this is where, where this came out of, after losing a debate at the Socratic Club in Oxford, so one of those debate clubs, um, to an atheist, he felt that there was another way that he could relate to people and reach them. And this loss of a debate is what brought him to a place where he wanted to help people understand God through creative symbolism and use of imagination. Chronicles of Narnia. That's where that was born out of. He understood that there was, there was another way to still proclaim the unknown God. Sometimes using imagination to convey the gospel message allows truth to be expressed and received by those who may not accept a direct message. Because when you think the Chronicles of Narnia, is it just Christians who read that story? It's really not. And we see Jesus using a similar approach to explain kingdom dynamics through parables and throughout his ministry. We see him doing the same thing. He's creative with it. Often people would ask a, a question and not understand or sometimes accept the answer until Jesus used a parable to explain it. And then they're like, oh, I get it. Such messages can be conveyed through writing, music, or visual arts. It's not just writing. Music can do it, which I guess is a form of writing, but it's a little more difficult writing. There's more to it than that. Visual arts. Have you ever been uh, moved by some form of artistic expression? I mean, I know we don't have a lot of fancy painting galleries or anything here in northwestern Ontario, but um, have you ever seen a painting and just been like, wow, I get it. There's something, there's something about this. Heard a song and been brought to tears. It's important that we foster this in people because of the power that they have. They have real application in proclaiming the unknown God. Now, even if we aren't spirited debaters, if we're not articulate, and even if we're not the next Mozart or Van Gogh, with my stick figure drawings, there's another way that we can proclaim the unknown God. We are all capable of being good friends and showing love and compassion to those around us, and we're called to do that. Being made in the image of God we are created as social beings. 
a lack of social connection brings problems with mental health and loneliness. We've experienced that over the last couple of years. Just living our lives in a way that reflects the love of God is a way that we can share the gospel message just by how we live. Simple friendship and being a good neighbor proclaim the unknown God. So it's important for us to note here that the unknown God ultimately has made himself known to us. He desires to have a relationship with us and for us to seek him out. People who are adamant about arguing against the existence of God are often some of the ones who are actually seeking the most. And it's important that we follow the Spirit's lead in dealing with people so that we have the greatest opportunity to share the love of Christ with them. So with that in mind, there are a few things to remember when proclaiming the known God. First, when having a discussion with people, we need to keep the conversation relevant to the people that we're speaking with while still letting the Spirit lead and drawing on biblically grounded um, knowledge. And it's okay to draw on the things that make sense to them. We can pull from pop culture and things to make a point for people so that they get it. Because again, they might not know who Jesus is. We can use their things to reveal him. I should say that he can use their things to reveal himself. Let me correct that phrase. And that's how you can make sure that they're able to relate to what you're saying. The second thing is that creativity is an excellent way to share the gospel. We get our creativity from God because look around the room. God was pretty creative. And it can be used to speak to people within their own context. The third thing is that we can all be good friends. We can be good neighbors, even if we aren't scholars or artists. Relationships are one of the most important aspects of human life together. And there are few things that are more impactful than showing people, uh, at showing people the love of Jesus. So whether we are taking or talking with people about God's love, writing the next New York Times bestseller, maybe I'll get there one day, or just living out our lives in community around us, let us do it in a way that proclaims the known God. So, Father, as we come to this time where we approach the table, I just pray that you would open our hearts and, and show us that you died so that we can proclaim you, Father. That everything that you did on the cross was so that people would come to know you. And we're tasked with facilitating that, Father. So God, as we, as we remember you and what you did, 
Help us remember why you did it, Father. In your name, amen.